As was announced already today, how thankful we each can be for the opportunity that has been given to us to assemble and to gather and to meet. It is certainly our desire to do so under the direction and under the leadership and in full accordance to the Word of God. As we studied in our Bible class this morning, we are reminded all throughout the Word of God as to the importance of the sacred Word and how thankful we can be to study it and to worship in accordance to it today. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4, verse 24. Today, as we come to this portion of our period of worship, I would invite you for the next few moments to visit with me the 16th chapter of Mark. As we consider a lesson entitled, He is Risen, Mark 16, verse number 6. As we look at some of the features of this passage, and as we give consideration to a few of the things found within it, we're reminded time and again of some lessons that we might begin by considering under the details of this introductory page. The events surrounding Jesus. He is, of course, the central aspect and the central feature of the Word of God. His resurrection was truly a great event in history. In fact, one could argue it is the single greatest event to ever have transpired. As we look at it, a few of these introductory thoughts seem so very appropriate. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they detail the great life that Jesus lived, the fact that He went about always doing what was good. He challenged and encouraged those about Him to think about things godly and to live as they ought to live. He reminded them about the reality of a place called heaven, and also about the terrible place called hell. And He warned those that were headed toward the one to repent, to make a change, so that they could have their name enrolled in the book of life. This place called heaven was a very wonderful place of which Jesus spoke. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Sweet, sweet words uttered by Jesus on that occasion in John 14, beginning in verse 1. In all of those instances, they point us. This great one that we've just considered briefly, he was put to death. He was no criminal. He was not one that was against the matter of the state. He simply taught the truth in every regard and in every way, and yet wicked and cruel hands put him to death, Acts 2.22. You'll notice, though, that every one of these gospel accounts, as they highlight the character of that death, what to you and me may seem unthinkable. He was scourged. He was beaten. He was reviled. He was mocked. He was treated in an almost inhumane fashion. And every gospel account detailed it. No wonder then as we come to those points, there can almost be an air of despair that fills us. An air of discouragement, an air of, shall we say, unpleasantness. But in every sense, we are thus before those gospel accounts close, reminded that a great event followed it. His death was not the end. Rather, just as He had foretold, the third day I'll rise again. I would invite us this morning to give some renewed thought to the fact of that resurrection. From the time that He was put into the tomb on that Thursday afternoon until the time that He rose forth that Sunday morning, 
three days in which there was opportunity for great despair and discouragement, what, come, what came to pass? As you can see near the close of that slide, there was a great encouragement and a great sense of hopefulness that filled the hearts of those apostles when that Sunday morning came. And today it still fills us. What are some things we can say about this resurrection and how will it be such a helpful matter to us? I would invite you to begin as we look at some of these features that add some detail to what we've just mentioned. But that detail will only be pushed far forward as we look at the way the Scriptures present it. First of all, in texts such as Luke 18, beginning in verse 31, only a very few days prior to His own crucifixion, Jesus had stated in clear ways and in very clear language that I am going up to Jerusalem and I will be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles and they will put the Son of Man to death, but He will rise the third day. Jesus had already spoken to those apostles that He was shortly to be put to death. And thus, as He made that journey toward Jerusalem and as He would underwent the things that would be His lot there, how often must they in their mind have reflected on the fact Jesus knew all of this was coming, and yet He never shirked it and He never veered aside from it. You'll notice in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse number 1, we have the following statements about the nature of this resurrection. I would invite you to read it because it has in it an air of such importance. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Of interest in that particular passage, I would invite you to note this with me. Paul said, I would invite you to note that Jesus in fact died according to the Scriptures for our sins. There is not anyone then that can perhaps underestimate the importance of Jesus' death. He died for our sins, and that's the only way that sins can be forgiven. He died for our sins, but Paul did not stop there. It goes on to say he was buried. That is an absolute testimony to the fact that he did die. One can't claim that he was merely unconscious. One can't claim that he was merely in some kind of hallucinatory state. The Lord died. Of that there can be no question. In fact, even the Romans were convinced of it when the Roman soldier thrust the spear into his side and forthwith came forth blood and water. John 19 verse 34. That was a hallmark to the fact that he had died. The Romans were very good at what they did. When it came to crucifixion, when it came to inflicting punishment, when it came to asserting the needfulness and truthfulness of matters, here were soldiers sent to ensure that those were dead. The other two thieves had their legs broken. The Lord, though, was already dead. The Roman soldier knew that. As you look at some of these comments, you can easily then note with that this particular phrase occurs in that text we just read. Paul did, by inspiration, say how that first of all. 
What's the significance of that phrase in Greek? First of all, means that this was of primary importance. One cannot overlook the Lord's death. One should not overlook His burial. But one must not overlook the resurrection either. The resurrection was a part of that which Paul referenced. How that first of all, you'll notice that highlights the significance of the Lord's resurrection. I would submit to you that in the day in which you and I live, there are many people in this world who give a great deal of importance to the Lord's death. They are those that give a great deal of importance to His burial. But there are legions of people that seemingly give very little, if any, importance to His resurrection. And one of the ways that that is highlighted is this. The fact that the Lord was raised was one of the guarantees that all of us too shall be raised someday. But not only that, it is a recognition of the fact that not until then will there be any entrance into heaven. There are vast numbers that think today that the moment someone dies, at least if they're a Christian, they are in fact taken directly to heaven. The Scriptures do not teach that. And furthermore, we might appreciate that those who think along that line then really have little appreciation for what will transpire when the Lord comes back. I would invite you to look at some of the other statements of that slide. The church in Corinth was suffering under a number of problems, misunderstandings and misgivings. The book of 1 Corinthians is filled with those concepts. They were battling matters of division amongst themselves. They were battling issues of marriage, divorce and remarriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. They were battling matters attached to the proper observance of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. They were struggling with issues of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, chapters 12 to 14. This church in Corinth, you see, had their share of difficulties and problems. One of them was the resurrection. Paul, in fact, will devote the entirety of the 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to a discussion of that resurrection. For those reasons, I would invite you to look at some of the points Paul makes. There were those in that day questioning the resurrection, questioning whether it happened, questioning how important it was, questioning whether or not it had any implications for us in Christ. For all those reasons, look at some of the points that the inspired apostle makes. Beginning in verse number 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? You'll notice that Paul said, If it is the case that Christ was raised, how could it be? And what is the point that there actually are some in the church there claiming that Christ was not raised? These points directly follow. Verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? First of all, if there is no future resurrection of the dead, then one cannot with confidence claim that Christ was raised. But that's not the only conclusion. And if Christ be not risen, verse 14, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. If Christ was not risen, then Paul and those other inspired New Testament preachers, they were preaching lies, and therefore that which they spoke was in error, 
and their faith was in error. And furthermore, all of those throughout the centuries that had believed that Christ was raised, they too have believed a lie, and their faith too has been in vain. Next verse. Verse 15, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. You can see the powerful structure of conclusion that Paul is reaching. If Christ wasn't raised, then not only is our faith vain, but furthermore, all preachers who preach that Christ was raised, they are liars. That would include myself and multitudes of others through the centuries. If the Lord wasn't raised, then all of those who preach that He was have been false witnesses. Verse 15 closes by saying, Even God Himself did not accomplish what many have said that He did. Verse 16, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. We often again think about the crucifixion of Christ and the shedding of His blood and the opportunity that's ours in terms of being forgiven from sin. But Paul said, if Christ was not raised, we are still in our sins. May we never forget the significance and the importance of the resurrection. In light of all of that, might I ask you to consider some of the statements at the bottom of that slide. Just as surely as the apostles were false witnesses, if Christ was not raised, and just as surely as many, in fact, are mistaken if He was not raised, you and I are still in our sins if He was not raised. It's no wonder we should celebrate the thought of that resurrection, the power and the beauty inherent in it, the marvelous features that lead us to appreciate that He was who He said He was, he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the one whose blood could cleanse sin. As you think about all those features, your hope and mine is grounded in the reality of the resurrection. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, we read in that verse and the two that follow it, verses 3 through 5, about the reality of according of the blessed hope that you and I have in Christ, according to the resurrection. It's according to the resurrection that we have this hope. Peter, what hope are you talking about? A hope laid up in heaven, undefiled, untainted in any way. That hope is ours in part because of the resurrection. As important as the Lord's crucifixion was and as important as His death was, we must never overlook the resurrection. The Lord was raised. If He wasn't, our faith is vain. The character of what hope we have of heaven must rest all in vain. But yet because He was raised, we have every confidence and hope that we too one day shall be. And furthermore, because He was raised, we have the absolute hope that those who've made proper preparation, will be ushered into that beautiful and glorious climb hereafter. Paul stated it like this in Romans 1 verse 4. He said that Christ was proven to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. That's the way that He was proven to be who He said He was. It was the fact He was raised. 
at this point, you and I might interject some thoughts about many others through the centuries. Every now and then, there are delusional individuals who claim to be the Messiah. We've each heard about their stories in recent decades. James Jones and others. That scene in Texas just a few years back. All of these made claims of being the Son of God. How do we know they were liars? First of all, their claims didn't come true. And their tombs are not empty. Jesus' tomb was empty. As we read earlier, as Joy read for us there in Mark 16, when they came to the tomb, it was the angelic visitors who said, He is risen. He is not here. That remains to this day as the absolute recognition of the final proof that the Lord was who He said He was. Throughout the ages, the noble men of the Bible, like Noah and like Abraham and like David and like all the others, their bodies are still in the heart of earth somewhere. But the Lord's tomb was found empty. That highlighted the beautiful fact that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was the Son of God, and that those things that He taught and the matters that He set forth were in fact the truth. When you think about this significance, the importance that we have attached so far to the resurrection, we might in fact extend that beyond that initial set of considerations to this. The reality of the resurrection. I thought it rather useful to include a section like this in the lesson this morning because isn't it amazing that there still are those that question whether Jesus ever really was resurrected. There are many books you can go to a library and find in which a scholar or some other stu studied person makes the statement that, well, perhaps the Lord really was not resurrected. And they offer their supposed arguments and they offer their supposed analysis of the circumstance to at least make some claims that might be like this. Let's build up to those points. You and I know that death to us seems so final. We approach the death of a loved one and we attend the funeral and we go to the place of interment and it seems so final. After all, not a one of us have ever with our physical eye seen a body raised. Not a one of us. No wonder then when there are those in our world today who think, well, because I've never seen it, it cannot be real and it cannot exist. And so these passages that talk about the Lord, maybe they were figurative. Maybe it really didn't happen, but the apostles thought it did. Maybe it really didn't happen, but there were others who wanted it to so badly they concocted the stories. Maybe it really didn't happen the way they said it did. There are many today who think along that line. Look at just some of these passages. In Mark 16, verse 16, notice the language that was used. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. So the very one that had been crucified only three days before was the very same one they were seeking. It says, He is risen, three little words. He is risen, He is not here. 
those angelic visitors, as they were there giving testimony to the events of that occasion, they said, we know who you were seeking. It's not that the apostles were seeking someone different than who the angelic visitors were talking about. They were all speaking about the one and same person. It goes on to say, He is risen, He is not here. What a monumental message. That message is perhaps highlighted in some of these things. What had taken place in those three days? We recall that at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday, Jesus died. The gospel accounts previously had made record of that event. They had pointed out in such clear language, after three hours of darkness, the Lord gave up the ghost. The text says in John 19 verse 30, it is finished. The Lord passed away. We remember, though, that before Sunday on that day, the Jews, as they were making ready for the Passover, making ready for the events of the things to transpire, they made preparation. We remember that Joseph of Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, made preparation of the Lord's body, putting a hundred pounds of perfumes and spices upon it. We notice that they put it then in that tomb that tomb that belonged to one far richer in the flesh than Jesus was. Some of those points I've highlighted in this way. You'll notice that they did bury it, but that isn't all the text says. Specifically in Mark 15, 46, they placed a stone over it. They sealed the place of entombment. And not only that, they set a watch along with it, Matthew 27, verse 66. At this point, we can appreciate then that this place of burial of the Lord's body was very closely watched and guarded. That stone that was rolled over it was enormous. No single person by himself could ever have rolled it away. But not only that, there was Roman guards watching it day and night. All of that leads us to appreciate that it would not have been easy to steal the body it wouldn't have been easy to in otherwise bother it or in fact do some matter of disarrangement to it. At this point, consider some of those arguments or at least some of those approaches that are used today. There are those who will forthrightly say, but someone came and stole that body. It wasn't really raised. They will claim that the apostles stole it. Some will say the Romans came and stole it. Others will list someone else as having come and stolen the body. But might we ask some of these questions? Who would have come to steal it and why would they have done so? Does it make sense the apostles would have come and taken it even if they could have? After all, what is it those apostles did in the days following this? If the apostles had come and stolen that body, then that means they knew the Lord really did not rise. And yet, one by one in the book of Acts and otherwise, we are told and we learn that they gave their lives for the, for the reality of the resurrection. For instance, in Acts chapter 12, James was put to death. James was put to death. And yet he was one among others who preached about the resurrection, preached about the truth of it, preached about the occurrence of it. Would they have given their lives, knowing all the while that what they were preaching was a lie? That's un that is unthinkable, and it's also nonsensical. 
we do remember that Jesus had foretold to those apostles that on the third day He would rise again, Luke 18, 34. But yet they would have had no reason to think to go and steal it. After all, those apostles also, we find in Acts chapter 1, had an element of disbelief in them. They seemingly were not convinced of the greatness of those events until the final time when in fact the Lord began to appear to them. After all, on that road to Emmaus, weren't those two disciples as surprised and shocked as anybody else? When that discussion unfolded in Luke chapter 24, here was a stranger that joined himself to them and they conversed and talked for some time and finally it says their eyes were opened. They weren't expecting a resurrection. And then when their eyes were opened, it says, Did not our heart burn within us? Has He spoke with us by the way, and has He opened unto us the Scriptures? Luke 24, 32. It was then that they ran back and told Peter and the others, We have spoken to the risen Lord. It was then that they became convinced. When you and I think about the nature of this resurrection, you'll notice that the apostles, it makes no sense, they would have stolen the body. What about the Romans? May we be just as quick to suggest, here were Romans. They had been given charge of watching that tomb. They were to watch it around the clock, day and night. However, you and I know that if someone stole it, that could only mean one of two things. Number one, either they had fallen asleep, those soldiers that were supposed to be watching it, or they had in fact gone AWOL. They had left their post. They had did not remain what they were, and do what they were supposed to do. Either way, that was punishable by death in Rome. You could not, in fact, let prisoners escape from you. By the same token, here was one that you had been commanded to watch, though the body was in the ground. Again, if you were derelict in your duty, it would have cost you your life. Does it make sense then the Romans would have stolen it? That would have meant their own lives would have been given in response to what they had failed to do. It makes no sense for the Jews to have taken it. It makes no sense for the Romans to have taken it. How can some then today claim that that's what this was all about? It simply isn't so. You'll notice that in light of all these other things, we have the additional testimony of these facts. There are witnesses. Witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I've listed just a few of them for you. In 1 Corinthians 15, that very passage that we noted earlier, I would invite you to continue reading with me at verse 5. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Paul's statements are profound, aren't they? Paul, in essence, said he was seen of various people, the apostles, Peter, James, above 500 brethren at once. And in fact, he said some of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Paul says there are witnesses, eyewitnesses to seeing him. And when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he made note to them, 
these witnesses, some of them are still living. All you have to do is go ask them. Paul was not completely unashamed of anything he had said here about the resurrection. He knew that it was true. He had preached that it was true. And there were witnesses that could confirm it was true. That is still the only logical explanation for the events that took place that Sunday morning. He is risen. He is not here. The women were told that message. When Peter and John ran to the tomb upon the word from the women, they too found the body gone. The clothes were still there, but the body was not. All the while, can we not then see that some of these things are easily then to be stated? When we come to the book of Acts, after the events of this resurrection, those apostles, though at first and previously they were somewhat unconvinced, now they preached it as absolute truth. When Peter, for example, stood up on that day of Pentecost, and in Acts 2, verses 22 to 32, he straightforwardly said, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you've crucified. Verse 24 concludes that point by saying, it was not possible that the grave could hold him. But God hath raised him up, and it's this same one that reigns today over spiritual Israel, the church. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. He was resurrected. In the midst of that discussion, he made note of David. David's tomb is still here, Peter said, but the Lord's body is not. He was resurrected. There are some who bring about doubts concerning the nature of that resurrection from this point of view. They say that were not others in the Bible also raised to life? We will remember Jesus raised three. There was Jairus' daughter. There was, of course, Lazarus in John 11. There was the son of the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7. The Lord raised all of them to life, so is the resurrection a strange thing? There's something very different about the Lord's. The Lord, in fact, brought them back to life. They died again. The Lord was resurrected never to die again. He was resurrected and not many days later ascended forevermore to the Father on high. As that detail is given to us in Acts chapter 1, we remember how special that ascension was and the apostles gazed into heaven as they watched Him depart. There was this promise. Acts 1 verse 11 still says that this same Jesus whom you've seen depart shall so come in like manner as you've seen Him go. You see, He rose again, resurrected, never again to die. You and I can then appreciate some of those thoughts. The Lord's enemies, as we see them in the book of Acts and otherwise, had no way to actually refute this resurrection. Think about that day of Pentecost again like this. Here was Peter and those other apostles standing up and with great confidence preaching about the resurrection. Now, if the Jews knew that they had stolen the body, and if the Romans knew that it had been stolen, why did not they on the day of Pentecost stand up and refute everything Peter said by pulling out that body and saying, Here it is. Obviously they didn't because they couldn't. The Lord's resurrection had happened. His body wasn't there. It's not that it was stolen. It's not that He'd slipped away quietly somewhere. The Lord was resurrected. And that resurrection holds within it the greatest hope for you and for me. 
That resurrection perhaps leads us to this last consideration of the time of our study this morning. While here upon earth, the Lord claimed to be the Son of God. He made that claim time and again. He stated that the one that speaks unto thee, I am He. The Lord said that twice. The context was Messiah. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am come from heaven, and I've came to do the Father's will. I am the one that shall give His life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. On all those occasions, the Lord had made all these claims, and He had also said, I'll give my life a ransom for many, and I'll be resurrected, raised the third day. If one of those things is true, and if He was the Messiah, all of them needed to be true. But if one of them was an error... We have every right to question all of it. All that comes to us today in light of this. Jesus in His resurrection then gives us the following set of questions. There really are only three options. Either the Lord was a liar, He was a lunatic, or He is the Lord. If he was a liar, then he claimed he would be raised, but he really was not. If he was a lunatic, he perhaps thought that he was from God, and he claimed he would be raised, but again, he really wasn't. But if he was raised, as he said he would be, the only option is he is the Lord, the absolute ruler over all things spiritual, the one who himself said, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, 18. And that means He is the one before whom all of us must humbly and submissively bow, giving the fullest acquiescence of life to Him and striving to follow Him with all the declaration and all the devotion and all the dedication that is ours. Every one of us must personally make that statement. Is He the lunatic, the Lord, or a liar? If you believe Him to be the Lord but you haven't rendered obedience to Him, why not today? He was raised. I am absolutely confident of that, as I'm sure most everyone who is a student of the Scriptures must be as well. That same one is the one before whom we shall stand on that day of judgment. In John 5, 22, He is the judge, and God has bequeathed to Him the fullness of judgment on that great day. How will it be for you as you stand before Him? Will you stand there with confidence and assurance knowing that you have placed within the context of life all the earnestness of your life? Or on that day, will you be left without? Because you did not obey the one who is the Lord. The final questions of the lesson are these. As personally as they might well be stated, Jesus is Lord. Hebrews 5, verse 8 and verse 9 says it like this, Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Those apostles were convinced of His resurrection, and they gave their lives because of it. Are you and I as convinced? If so, then you and I too must serve Him with all the dedication that's ours, and also under the banner of Colossians 3.17, may we say, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Thankfully, Jesus was raised. 
He is risen. That was the message of Mark 16, 6. Today, if you haven't planted your life on the basis of that resurrection, why not today? It is in baptism that you and I too not only are likened unto His burial, we bury the old man of sin, but the text says we rise to walk in newness of life. Just like He was resurrected, we too come forth one that's a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, in our baptism, we enjoy a likeness of His death and enjoy a powerful likeness to His resurrection. If you haven't attended to that need in your life today, there could never be a better day than this one. We'd be honored to assist you in your obedience to the gospel call of invitation. If you have believed in Jesus and repented of your sins, why not complete that very quickly by making confession of His name and being baptized for the remission of sins? If you have taken care of that need in life, but have come to the point that the resurrection has lost its significance, lost its meaning, why not revisit that great event and today come back to the first love of your life? If we could help you in doing that today, would you not let that be made known and let us assist you while together we stand and while we sing?